Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Today we're continuing our series AD 30, and I've entitled our message, The Breakup. Uh, Before we get into that, uh, last week we were talking about Jesus walking on water and uh, Peter walking on water and, uh, or trying to walk on water. And uh, Peter, can you turn me down a touch? I'm a little hot up here. Thank you. And uh, I talked about Peter making salvation history last week as he gets out of the boat and tries to follow Jesus, and then somebody afterwards correct me, and we want to be accurate with the scriptures here. So evidently, it's not just Jesus and Peter that walked on water. Here we have a picture of somebody else who has walked on water. Only three men in history have walked on water, Jesus, Peter, and Anselmo, and only Anselmo has the picture. (laughs) Evidently, the running of the bulls uh, continued where Anselmo lives, and you can see his feet are on top of the water. Gravity has not yet taken place. So just to correct last week's sermon a bit. In his provocative book, Modern Romance, actor and comedian Aziz Ansari describes watching his friend Derek search for a date on OkCupid, an app designed to help people find the perfect date. Derek got on OkCupid, and he let us watch as he went through his options. These were women whom OkCupid had selected as potential matches for him based on his profile and the site's algorithm. The first woman he clicked was, uh, on was uh, beautiful, uh, with a witty profile page, a good job, lots of shared interests, including a love of sports. After looking the page over for a minute or so, Derek said, well, she looks okay, I'm just gonna keep looking for a while. And I asked what was wrong and he said, She likes the Red Sox. I was completely shocked. I couldn't believe how quickly he had moved on. Imagine the Derek of 20 years ago finding out that this beautiful, charming woman was a real possibility for him for a date. The Derek of 1993 wouldn't have walked up and said, oh wait, you like the Red Sox. But the Derek of 2013 simply clicked an X on a web browser tab and deleted her without thinking twice. Derek is still looking, by the way. So Derek is looking at the ideal match, a woman who is beautiful and witty, a woman who comes with her own money, a woman you can take to a sports bar, a woman you can share your life with, you can have children with, you can laugh, cry, comfort, love, and you throw it all away because at a sports bar she's looking at the wrong TV, or because she has a pair of Red Sox pajamas as she's climbing into your bed as your wife. How dumb is that? But we want completely self-fulfilling relationships. We want relationships that are about us and our fulfillment. 
A steady diet of romantic sitcom movies sets us up to be disappointed with the imperfect love of spouses or family. That's the conclusion lead researcher Kimberly Johnson came to after exploring the influence romantic comedies have on us. Johnson and her researchers at Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh, Scotland, sought to determine if romantic comedies influence how we view love, sex, and marriage. They examined 40 box office hits between 1995 and 2005, such as one Ray Bride, Notting Hill, You've Got Mail, Made in Manhattan, While You Were Sleeping. Her conclusion was that watching these films harmed love lives by creating wildly unrealistic expectations because we want self-fulfilling relationships. One-sided, self-centered, somewhat narcissistic expectations are the norm when we look for relationships. Now that doesn't mean we won't try as well to some degree but we have to be happy. They need to make me happy. He needs to make me happy. She needs to make me happy. God needs to make me happy. Or else I'm breaking it off. We don't have enough in common sometimes. He says things I don't like. He embarrasses me at times. He wants a level of commitment that I don't want to give him. And I don't always like him. Today there are lots of people breaking up with Jesus. It's not new. I want you to turn to a passage in the scriptures where this takes place on a mass scale. It's in the book of John, chapter six, John chapter six, beginning in verse 53, page 77 in your New Testaments. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one near you. New Testament starts over with one again. So you can back up to page 77. That's where the passage is. Beginning in verse 53. Now this is the end of a long section where Jesus says he's the bread of life and there's a long dialogue which will develop in the sermon, but we're just reading the last part of it right now. Beginning in verse 53 on page 77, John chapter six. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me and also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died, he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, says, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble or to fall away? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. In other words, this sermon was it. So Jesus said to the 12, 
You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is a fascinating passage of Scripture because it highlights a time where Jesus really shifted in his levels of popularity. Masses of people stopped following him. And I want to walk through four reasons that we see in this text, and I'm sure there are many others. First, sometimes we walk away because we were only in it for the tangible benefits. Now this passage that we just read and many, many verses before it is only included in the Gospel of John. That's it, the other Gospels do not have this. It takes place actually the day after the feeding of the 5,000. And as we would say, when you see that feeding of the 5,000, there's an editorial comment in the Gospels which say that was not counting women and children. So it's 5,000 plus women and children. It's probably the feeding of the 20,000. Jesus has left abruptly after that feeding of the 20,000 because the crowds, according to verse 13 of this chapter, were actually, verse 15, were ready to anoint him as king. So they saw this incredible miracle, the feeding of the 20,000, and they're ready to make him king by force. We've got a miracle worker among us. We can get our country back. We can overthrow Rome. He sent his disciples onto the sea. He was concerned that they would be a part of this political revolution. They'd be caught up into it. So he gets rid of them right away and he heads up into a mountain to pray. And then later on that night, he joins them by walking on the Sea of Galilee. Peter tried as well. Remember the, the situation. Jesus is out there during a storm. Peter says to Jesus, hey, grant that I can walk towards you on the water as well. Jesus says, come on. And, and we saw that for a moment, he actually was successful. Peter was walking on water, and then he started seeing the winds and the waves. Not Jesus, and he began to sink. Jesus then calmed the sea. And at the end of that story, as Peter's walked on water and the sea is calmed, the conclusion of the disciples is, the 12, I mean, you are certainly God's son. So you've got the disciples concluding you are God's son. You've got this feeding of the 20,000 where they're concluding we need to anoint this guy king. Jesus is in a good place. He's incredibly popular. But he left that night so that this political revolution wouldn't begin. He got out of that area disciples went out on the sea, he walked out on the sea, and the crowds that had been a part of the feeding of the 20,000 are looking for him the next day. They know that Jesus didn't leave at the same time as the disciples, so they're a little confused as to where they're going to find him, but they track him down at Capernaum. And they start a dialogue, and we know much of this dialogue takes place in the synagogue. We're not sure if all of it does, but much of it takes place in the synagogue. That's identified uh, near the end of the chapter. By the time this sermon is over, the Jesus movement is a fraction of its former size. I want you to think about that. Jesus teaches in the synagogue of Capernaum, and by the time it's over, the Jesus movement is no longer what the Jesus movement was. In fact, the day before, at the feeding of the 20,000, that probably was the peak of Jesus' popularity in that region. Now they're little more than an adult Sunday school class. One sermon later. Why? 
what happened in that synagogue in Capernaum. And when we look at the whole passage, more than what I just read, there's a series of questions and answers that day that sort of reveal the spiritual state of most of Jesus' followers. And, and I fear that if we ask those same questions and get those same answers today, it kind of reveals our spiritual state as well and why many of us sometimes walk away from Jesus. Because Jesus has the same problem today. Sometimes we walk away because we were only in it for the tangible benefits. Verse 26 and 27, first they start this dialogue. Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, you seek me, you're coming to find me the day after the feeding of the 20,000, not because you saw signs, not because of the miracle, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. It's an interesting statement because the feeding of the 20,000 sort of was a sign. But Jesus is saying, you just wanted the benefit of what I can give you. You should have wanted the giver, you should have wanted the miracle maker, the miracle doer. What you really just wanted was the tangible benefits of what you see me capable of doing. Not because you saw signs, he says, which point to God, but because you ate and were filled. Now, it's interesting in this passage, and when you see something repeated over and over in a sermon, just like if I was saying it or if Jesus were saying it, when you see something repeated over and over and over, you know, Jesus is trying to make a point. Look at how many times he tries to get across the point that he is God in this passage, and they're looking at the wrong things. Verse 33, the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven. He's talking about himself. Verse 38, I have come down from heaven. Verse 41, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down out of heaven. Verse 51, comes down out of heaven. Verse 58, the bread that comes down out of heaven. Over and over and over. He is repetitious. He is redundant. Because they wanted what he could do for them here. And they needed him. They needed God. They needed salvation. They needed spiritual life. And they were only there for what they could get out of Jesus tangibly. One of the primary reasons people walk away from Jesus today is still this. Nothing's changed because people haven't changed. We were sold on the benefits. We were sold on the benefits. Oftentimes we heard the gospel and it was a little bit of a bait and switch. God has great plans for you. Pray and God will give you stuff. That's what he's there for. A glorious vending machine in the sky. God will bless you. He wants you to have a better life than you could ever have without him. And of course, we interpret that to mean a life with less suffering, less pain, a better life, the way we interpret better. You're gonna be happy if you follow Jesus. What's interesting is Jesus said your life's gonna be harder if you follow him. But we say it's gonna be all better. And we develop in the Christian community, especially in Western society where, where we actually have great lives, we develop what I would call just expectation inflation. In fact, I don't want to get too controversial here, but I would say that if we're after Jesus just for forgiveness and heaven, we still might be missing the point a little bit. 
because we should be after Jesus because he's God. The signs and miracles point to the true God. He is the prize, not the benefits. Even if we die for the cause, he is the prize. Sometimes we walk away because that's not our goal. We were just in it for what we could get from him. And then when we don't get those things, he's a disappointment. Second, sometimes we walk away because we fail to see our true spiritual need. Now I'm going to move through these next two a little more quickly because the fourth one is a little more relevant to us as well. Verses 28 and 29, the dialogue continues. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now what's going on here is they're sort of revealing a little bit about their view of salvation here. Jesus used the word work in the prior verse, and so they jumped on that because they have sort of a a formulaic system of righteousness. And what I mean by that, sorry for that sort of... um, broad theological statement without any meaning, a formulaic system of righteousness. What I mean is they believed it was within themselves to be right with God. They believed if they just sort of mark all the boxes, do all the right things, that God will be happy with them. And not only that, their nation would be restored to a place of sort of splendor on the world stage. That's what they believe. In fact, they would say this, the rabbis of Jesus' day would say, do right and live. Think about that. Do the right thing and you will have spiritual life. Jesus never says that. He says, believe and live. Because Jesus knew, and the Bible teaches throughout, that we can never do enough good. We are fundamentally flawed. That's why Jesus calls us lost. We need a rescuer. We need a savior. And the one work we bring to the salvation process is not even a work. It's just believing in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That's the one thing we bring to the table is a contrite heart and faith in Jesus. But religions sort of give us the idea that we can earn it, especially many of the world religions, that we can sort of earn our way into salvation. What's interesting is the brother of Jesus said in his book, James chapter 2, I believe it's verse 10, that if anyone can keep the whole law, in other words, all of God's rules in the Old Testament covenant, the Ten Commandments and the other 500 and some rules you'll find in that area of scriptures, if anyone can keep all of them, And yet offend in one point, James says, brother of Jesus, you're guilty of all of it. His point is this. How many rules do you have to break to be a lawbreaker? How many times do you have to fail to to demonstrate that you're not perfect? Only once. That's James' point. And Jesus is the only perfect being. And yet inherently, we as people who are spiritual people, we're made in the image of God, we naturally want to do the right thing, thinking it will be good enough for God to say, hey, well done, come on into heaven. But it's not. We need Jesus, his death on the cross, This group of people didn't understand that yet. So they're saying, hey, tell us what to do and we'll do it. We'll earn it. You know, what's interesting is when we walk away from Jesus today, when we walk away from the crowd because we don't like what Jesus is offering or he says something we don't like, we are theologically concluding one of these truths. I can earn salvation on my own. Or... Jesus isn't the only way 
I'll hitch a ride with some other religious figure. Or, there's no such thing as personal lostness. Either way, think of what we are leaving when we walk away from Jesus. The evidence of a miraculous person. Secular and biblical authors write about the life of Jesus. We're walking away from the cross and our belief that that alone atones for sin. We're walking away from a belief in the resurrection and the ascension. The resurrection being an exclamation point on what Jesus did on the cross. We're walking away from the willingness of the witnesses who saw all of this to be martyred over it. We're walking away from all of that evidence and saying, I don't need the cross. I'm gonna be okay on my own. And when we do that, we fail to see our spiritual need. Sometimes we walk away because the evidence will never be enough. Now I find this to be just a fascinating, the the dialogue continues, I just find this to be fascinating, the human condition. So they said to him, verse 30, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven. It's my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. So they, they want to know from Jesus, what are you going to do to prove that there's something unique about you? They wanted a sign. So they refer to this ancient miracle when Israel was wandering around in the wilderness when God gave them manna. Now interestingly in the Hebrew, manna means, what is it? So one day as the children of Israel are out in the wilderness and they're starting to go hungry and they're complaining a lot to Moses, he goes to God. God's not real happy about it, but he says, I'm gonna take care of them. So for 40 years, every day when they got up, there was something on the ground, it was sort of white, it might have been like the native coriander seed or something like that. It would show up on the ground, they would pick it up, they would get it every day, And right before Sabbath, they would get two days worth. They couldn't refrigerate it. They couldn't keep it. It would spoil, but it was good for a day or two. And God provided for them for 40 years, miraculously, that way. Now, Jesus is saying, I'm the manna. I'm the bread from heaven. But the point is, they want to see a sign. They want to see a sign. And they refer to manna. So Jesus uses it as a a sort of a metaphor of himself, that he is now that manna. He's the true bread from heaven. But here's the point I want to make about this. This group of people had just witnessed the the biggest public miracle of Jesus' career. Less than 24 hours prior to this, Jesus turned a happy meal into 20,000 combo meals without the Star Wars prize, but everything else. Jesus took a kid's lunch and turned it into 20,000 meals. It was such a compelling situation that 20,000 people were starting a political riot to make Jesus their king. That was yesterday. In fact, technically, it was last night. It's been less than 24 hours, and the same group of people comes back to Jesus and said, we want a sign. What, do you, what are you going to do here? We, we want to see a sign. We, we need some evidence that, that you actually are capable, that, that God is involved here in some way. For some of us, 
it just doesn't matter how much evidence there is. It's never going to be enough. We have salvation history recorded. We have thousands of years of fulfilled prophecies that end in Jesus. We have the most manuscript evidence for the New Testament in particular than any other ancient document, religious or secular. All of the things that you can find in libraries around the world about the Roman wars and other things don't have the manuscript evidence of the New Testament that we all possess. We have 10,000 ancient manuscripts of Greek and other languages of the New Testament that are ancient manuscripts. They have an unprecedented consistency. They are 99.9% .9 consistent with each other. There is no distortion. They are so close in their, the first ones are so close to the actual events that took place in the first century that there was no time for them to become legends and fables and myths. We have manuscript evidence that probably comes actually from the first century and certainly from the second century. And men and women died saying the stories were all true. No religion in the world gives us a path to God other than Christianity that does not go through us, where we have to earn it. The signs are all there. The signs are all there that this is the truth of God. And the signs were there for the people who walked with Jesus. They just didn't read them. Sometimes we walk away because the evidence will never be enough. And fourth, sometimes we walk away because his words are too extreme. And this is where I do want to park a little bit because this is the world we live in. And we're not exactly sure what Jesus meant in this passage. A lot of debate about that. But it definitely sent the movement off the rails. Verse 53. This is not something you say to a Jewish audience. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. See, the Jews had rules in their legal code against eating meat with blood in it. In fact, you'll see that they had rules that you couldn't eat meat where the animal was strangled. They wanted kosher meat and a kosher kill, which meant you had to slit the throat, drain the blood out so there was no blood left in the meat. So when Jesus starts doing the eat my flesh, drink my blood comment, they were absolutely repulsed. And even though we live a couple thousand years later, I think we'd all agree it's not our favorite passage of scripture. So we're not sure what this means. Here are a few options, and I'm not gonna be able to tell you for sure what it means because scholars do not know and they do not agree. It's possible that the Catholics are right and Jesus is introducing sacramental, what's called transubstantiation, which means that when you take communion, it is the body and blood of our Lord. Now, I don't believe that, it's not our view of communion, but that would be a Catholic view, and if you're Catholic, you would probably say this is a passage that may authenticate that view. Or it's possible Jesus is simply using language from the ancient sacrificial systems where the sacrificer took and ate part of the sacrifice. 
and in these other religions of Jesus' era, it was viewed as sort of eating the God and becoming like that God. You sort of took on that God's vitality. You took on that God's life. Could be an allusion to that. Or, and I would say this is probably what Jesus is doing, he's simply using overly literal language to describe our need for his life to be appropriated to our lives. The Christ life in us. I think that's what he's doing. Either way, in Jesus' short sermon here, he's gone from manna as a sign in the Old Testament to I am the bread of life from heaven to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people didn't do really well with that. The place emptied. Literally. You know, they had the potluck afterwards, they had the little kosher wieners and everything, and they had all kinds of really good food, and nobody was sticking around. All that's left is a 12 with too much to eat after that sermon. And Jesus, unfortunately for him, faces the exact same problem today. He says too many things that we simply cannot stomach and live with. You know, I... I know it's not my job, but I tend to do it a lot, sort of, in a sense, defend God. Sort of apologize for God at times because there are things in the Bible that are almost too hard for followers of Jesus to handle. And I think I can do a good job of that. When we get to heaven, he might say, you really didn't have to work so hard at that, Paul. I can defend myself. But I do kind of feel the need to defend God a lot. You know, when you look in the Old Testament and you see the death of Israel's enemies, wars that God is taking a side on, that's a little difficult for some people, that he has like a favorite people and everyone else gets pushed out of the land and there's some pretty brutal things. Now, I can explain that, that the enemies of Israel working against the kingdom of God on earth, but that doesn't work really well for a lot of people. Sometimes extreme punishments of God's own people. In the Old Testament, there's some people who are sort of standing up against the kingdom of God and against Moses. The earth opens and swallows them up. For those of you who are looking for a kinder, gentler Jesus, I'm not sure you always get that. For some of us, it's really one path to God. I mean, God wouldn't really do that, would he? And there's got to be like... Maybe there's one path to God and it's just Jesus, but, but at the end of the day, you can believe whatever you want and as long as you're sincere, Jesus will sort of be applied to you and it really doesn't matter if you really knew Jesus or believed in Jesus or believed in his death and resurrection because that would be too narrow. Even though Jesus said it was the narrow way, we don't want to believe it because we like Jesus, we just don't like what he said. Hell. Well, that's pretty grotesque and cruel to us. God's expectation that a created world would worship him. Well, doesn't that make God a little narcissistic? That we have to bow down and worship him, whoever he is. Well, how about, this is maybe the best one, sexual ethics. Gender definitions, marriage. It's just too much, Jesus. You need a little better PR department because this ain't working anymore. You've lost touch with the culture. Keep up 
We could make you more popular if you would just keep up. He doesn't. And so we walk away. And it's gonna get harder for him in the coming days. You can just ask a couple other churches in Calgary about that this morning. It's hard to follow Jesus sometimes. It always has been. We've been blessed to be a part of the Western world, much of which was founded, at least the people who came here, I'm not talking about the original uh, tribes, but as the West was settled with Europeans as well, we brought Christian values for the most part. And yes, some terrible things happen, and I'm not defending everything about North American history in here or the States. But Christianity influenced cultures and gave us freedom in ways that most nations and continents of the world have never experienced for most of history. We've benefited from that. Much of the world has benefited from that. It hasn't always been perfect. Christianity's done some stupid things throughout history as well in the name of Jesus. But it has brought a lot of freedom as well. But we've been fortunate to live in that freedom. For much of history, most of the people of God have been punished for their beliefs. Two things I wanna close with. First, break up apps. There are unlimited reasons to walk away from Jesus. If you're looking for an excuse, I'm a Christ follower and I hope I would be willing to die for him, but I can give you a lot of reasons to walk away from Jesus if you're looking for him. You know, when I first somehow convinced my wife to marry me, which I view as a modern day miracle, you know, I was looking forward to being married to her. We went through some premarital testing with Pastor Doug. And when we went through our premarital testing, we recognized that we didn't have a lot in common. And I've said this before. I mean, we had values in common. We wanted the same things related to family. We agreed on money, things like that. But we really didn't have things in common to do. Like, we didn't enjoy the same things. And that's why I always said, what we did have in common is we both loved me. And I thought that would be enough to sustain a marriage. I mean, I love me, she loves me. We can be happy with this, right? I hope you know I'm joking. Don't send me an email. But we grew. Our, our values were so similar. We had children, we developed a heritage, a legacy together. And as we come up here, sort of in our, in our older years, at 41, uh, we started enjoying other things together. You know, the mountains. We go to the mountains together. We were enjoying games together until I started winning a lot. Still trying to work through that one. I have a competition problem, and that's not always easy to be married to. And I'm a little concerned that as I become a grandparent, I'm going to be like with my five-year-old playing checkers, five-year-old grandchild, and I'll beat this five-year-old, and I'll be like, it'll be like, in your face, punk. You know, I've got to learn to control this, you know? the competition thing. So that's a little hard for my wife, and I don't say that to her, but anyway. We have a new home. We're in a new country, and so this relationship has continued to grow. It's our marriage together. Some of us thought that when we signed up for Jesus, it would sort of be like, you know, when Dee Dee and I first got together and went to premarital counseling. We're gonna be okay, we both love me. I want a great life for myself. I'm looking out for myself. Now I got Jesus on my team. He's gonna look out for me. We both love me, God and me. It's gonna be great. 
We're both on my side. We're both for my future. And then life happens. And we end up in a dialogue with Jesus in a synagogue in Capernaum because it's not what we expected. Jesus isn't what we expected. He's a disappointment at times. And we kind of feel like we were given a little bait and switch when we came to faith because we were just sold on the benefits, what he would do for us. We hadn't looked hard enough into this to find out how hard it would be to believe this in a world that walks away from God. There's a hundred reasons to break up with Jesus. And I could probably give you more of them than an atheist could. But here's the problem. There's one all-encompassing reason to stay. And that we see at the end of the chapter. As a result of this, this sermon, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Jesus said to the 12, are you gonna go away too? You wanna walk away from me? Peter says, Lord, where are we gonna go? Where are we gonna go? Because we've discovered two things about you. You have the words of eternal life and you are the Holy One of God. And that's it. That's all that matters. If Jesus is who he says he is, that is where we start and everything else flows from that. If Jesus is the Son of God and Israel's Messiah as promised, then what he says is God's word. And whether we like it or not, following him means embracing his values, embracing him. Something in our world must be true. Either we're all you know, agnostic and something is true but we haven't found it yet, or one of the world religions is true. I believe the evidence points to Jesus. Something must be true. And Peter that day was saying, you know what Jesus, no matter how unpopular you are, no matter how many people are breaking up with you, I believe you have the words of eternal life. You're the Holy One of God, so I am not going anywhere. You can't pry me out of this pew in this synagogue in Capernaum. Even if everyone else falls away, I won't. That's what Jesus wants from you. If you're the last one standing, that's what he wants from you. God, we thank you for your word. And we know today that it is harder and harder to believe. And a part of that belief means being able to sort of live with and defend what we see we are to believe in an increasingly dark world where you are not believed in or even in the church where you are being redefined to fit our desires and our culture. We're willing to twist and turn and torture the scriptures to get a God that we like. But that's no God at all. Help us to be faithful. I suspect it's gonna get harder. But help us to be faithful to you, to love you, and to follow you, to not walk away. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.